Welcome to Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. And I'm Maddie. And this is a podcast where we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. So, Maddie, guess what I should have done before this podcast? What should you have done, Liz? I should have shotgunned a whole bottle of tequila. Uh, you would die. I think that would have been fun. I think you would have died. I think I would have been fine. In fact, I know I would have been fine because I'm special. You've lost me here, Liz. I mean, you're a wonderful, beautiful saint of a human, but I think you would have died. Well, you see, the women of my family have a special relationship with tequila. Every woman in my family, going back to my grandmother, loves drinking tequila. As we all know, liking something a lot makes you immune to its poison effects. Hey, don't argue with me. It's genetics. That's how that works. That's not how that works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes people will talk about how certain behaviors run in their family. So for instance, my family is very prone to anxiety. We're all prone to have a lot of anxious behaviors. We're very high-strung people. I, for instance, will drop at the jump of, drop of a shoot. <laughs> you will. Um, I, for instance, am easily startled and... Will jump. I'm an anxious person. Let's <laughs> um, and, and so there's, there's a number of behaviors that all run in my family. Like, my mother is very neat. My sister is extremely neat. You're extremely neat. I'm actually fairly well adjusted. Okay, get um, this world. Maddie makes me use two separate towels for washing the dishes and washing my hands. Are you sure you want to air your dirty laundry like this, Liz? <laughs> oh, well, speaking of dirty laundry, my floor is absolutely covered in it. Is that you've been hiding it from me? I didn't get that neatness gene, clearly. That begs the question, uh, how much of this is genetic and how much of it is learned? Is it simply mm. because I grew up with my mother, who's a, a very clean person, who's always, uh, who often worries about things? Did I simply gain that impulse from her because I learned it? Or is it actually some pre genetic predisposition mm. that runs in our family? Is there part of your DNA that we can sequence to find the anxious part? Is there part of my family's DNA we can sequence to find the likes tequila part? That's the question. This is something a lot of scientists think about. How much of a behavior is learned and how much is uh, heritable? How much is genetic? After all, behavior is really complicated. It's easy to look at a family and see that family has a tendency towards red hair or that family has blue eyes. It makes sense that our DNA makes the chemicals in our bodies that can turn hair red or turn eyes blue. So why doesn't it make sense that our DNA can't make the chemicals that can't make a little bit more serotonin here or a little bit more dopamine there or cause neurons to grow in a specific pattern toward other neurons? Yeah, but that's a little more complicated than just something being a specific color or being a specific height. The brain is complicated. And while it's easy to see in some cases how you can get one-on-one -on -one from this gene makes you tall, it's a little harder to visualize how this gene could make you an alcoholic. It's not a good place to make clear what we mean by behaviors. I might be wrong about this, but I think the colloquial idea of behaviors is a little bit different than the one often used in science. And honestly, behavior, we mean really any action an animal undertakes. Anything from flying, from singing, to pacing back and forth, to avoiding an unsavory stimulus. Pretty much anything is a behavior. It's something your nerves, your nerve cells make you do. So unlike, oh, for example, 
my eyes tearing up because I've got some dust in them. That's something that my eye cells do automatically. That's not behavior. Me crying because I've just watched the end of Titanic and I'm a huge chap. That's behavior. Yeah, and although I think there might be a nerve component to the response to the crying response, but yeah, there's an important distinction that it's not so much an intentional behavior, but it is a little bit more than a Oh, it's not necessarily more than a reflex, though. Reflexes still count. Yeah, it, it's a pretty broad definition. See, this is the har- horrible thing about scientific communication, when you try to make things simple, and then you're like, well, it could be that way. There's a hundred <laughs> other cases where it's not that way. Oh, gosh, I had that one professor in college who did those true-false tests where he said, if you take a kidney and you put this hormone into the kidney, will it make you dehydrated? And I was like, well, maybe under these circumstances, yes. And under these circumstances, no. So when we talk about evolution and behavior, this is where the problem gets really interesting. Because evolution can really only work on things that are inherited. It can only work on the stuff that's in your DNA or in very specific um, epigenetic modifications. Yeah, so I can pass on to my kids the ability to like tequila. Maybe. Maybe. But can I pass on my awesome dance skills? No comment. So when you talk about the intersection of evolution and behavior, it's really important to think about what part of behavior is genetic and what part is learned. So genetic behaviors are behaviors you would borrow from your genes, to put it very simply. Genetic behaviors are behaviors that almost any animal of a species will have, and they'll be roughly similar. They're usually behaviors that are needed across multiple contexts that don't need to change much. There's always a constant need for these behaviors. Um, so, for instance, um, such one genetic behavior would be suckling an infant. So, in babies, they will instinct- instinctively suckle. They'll suck on things because they want milk. And, well, no, actually, they'll suck on things because they suckle on things. That's what infants do. It's a genetic behavior. It's not, it depends on what level of analysis you want to go. I mean, they also may want the milk. It's on an evolutionary level versus on a brain level. The point is they do it instinct- mm-hmm. inst- instinctively. Or, for instance, uh, wall-hugging and brooches. So, like, you see brooches scurrying around your kitchen in the morning and they'll instinctively run for the darkness and, like, along the wall and then scurry out of sight. Or startle reflexes. So, you know, someone comes up behind you. And you punch them in the face. Yeah, like that. Or or you jump like a normal person. But, um, no, I'm... <laughs> who am I kidding? I'm going to punch people over this. <laughs> oh, for sure. I've socked them. Um, once I throw a water bottle on the guy. Um... <laughs> Or one example that's really complex is spider web spinning. If you've read Charlotte's Web... You know that spiders can talk. You know that spiders, when they're very young, spiders don't often interact with their mothers. They will... Interact with pigs. They will spread outward and go very far away. And they have no other spiders to teach them how to spin their web. How to spin their web comes pre-programmed into their brain. It's like that awful software you have on your computer when you first get a Microsoft PC. It's like Norton antivirus. But yeah, and so you have these beautiful, complex patterns of webs that it would take a human uh, ages to learn Mm. to make, and these spiders just do it instinctively. They just know how to do it. Yeah, any kind of spider anywhere at any time will probably need to make a web, because you always need to eat. Or you need a tiny little snuggling sack to snuggle into. Which is what jumping spiders do, and I studied them for my senior honors thesis. They are so adorable. They're very cute. Go look up jumping spiders. They have 
faces. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. And they'll look, they'll look at you. They'll actually, you put one on, put one on the counter, it'll look up at you and look, it's like making eye contact and actually have really high range of, like, high, very good vision and mm. can see very far. And so they can't actually see your face. I mean, they don't really understand what's going well, on. I'm sure they loved you. Um, one bit me. I'm sure that wasn't intentional. It hurt a lot. And Your then, rats bite you. Oh, it was definitely intentional. I mean, I'm kind of pushing it around because he was trying to escape, and I was trying to stop it from escaping. Okay, well, you were justified. And then I flung it across the room because it, like, hurt, like, a lot, and then I had to go hunting for it, and I may have shouted a curse word, and the people from the lab next door came over and was like, are you okay? And I was, eventually. And I did catch it. Did you get spider powers? I did not get spider powers. It, it's a constant sort of disappointment for me. So why does it make sense that some behaviors uh, are genetic? Why does it make evolutionary sense? The brain is a wonderful machine. The brain is a computer that assembled itself out of the raw materials of natural selection. And every computer needs a few things hardwired into it. Stuff like breathing. The brain needs to do things like sleep. So it can't have something like breathing be a behavior you learn to do. If we're getting down to the basics here, yeah. Yes. I'm really sort of led with those. Like, yeah, breathing, walking, breathing, sleeping. Walking is learned behavior. Some, in humans. In humans it is. Not yeah. in other animals. No, not in other animals. That's a good example of where a behavior evolves to be learned versus a behavior that evolved to be inherited. So if you look at horses, from the moment a horse is born... If it can't run, it's going to be left behind and it's going to starve to death. So baby horses are born knowing innately how to run. They're precocious. They're precocious, yeah. And that's a scientific term. We're not saying, oh, it's a baby horse. so precocious. It is, though. It's so it's good. so precocious. Precocious little baby. But the opposite of that word in scientific terms is altricial. Humans are altricial walkers. We need to be taught how to walk. Altricial is a fancy scientific word for just... Stupid. Just very dumb. Just so bad at it. I I, that's, that's false. That's a lie. We just made that up. A baby horse can run from birth, but a baby human needs to wait a year, and then they need to comically smack into things and make their parents worry, oh my gosh, they're gonna eat something sharp that's, and die. That's Eve's curse. So in the orangutan, if you go to the zoo and you look at orangutans and apes, who are some of our close cousins you'll notice that their babies, too, are not precocial walkers. They innately grab on to their mom's fur, and they just hang on to their moms and let their moms carry them around until they're old enough to learn how to get around on their own. Oh, what are some, example, some examples of learned behaviors? Um, you probably can guess these. Oh, it's like piano playing or... Let's talk about some animals. Some animals that are more fun. Well, for instance, what about, you know, you go to the grocery store or go to the boardwalk and you see those seagulls swooping down to steal I some french fries. I love those seagulls. Yeah, you love them right up until they steal They're all of your french fries. jerks. Yeah. Uh, no, what I love is I Do you went... you feel a kinship with them? Well, you see, I go to New Jersey and I see the boardwalk seagulls that are really scrawny and dirty and they will fight to the death for a french fry. And then you go to Rhode Island and you go to some of those really wealthy towns and all the seagulls are huge and fat and sleek and white. And you just know they look down on the New Jersey seagulls. Oh my god, there's class warfare in seagulls. In seagulls. This is horrible. But it's the scrappy, young, up-and-coming New Jersey seagulls who that go have on learned. To, that go on to lead successful television programs. Mm-hmm. And we should probably talk about some examples that don't have humans interfering. 
Yeah, well, I can say learning about new food sources is a learned behavior. So, you mm-hmm. know, you'll be born with an innate desire to go seek out food. You yeah. want food because you're hungry, but you need to learn about what is good not to eat. So, you don't know from the start that those red berries, oh, they look really tasty, but nope, they're full of poison. Or um, they'll make you really sick. You don't know that the mushrooms are good to eat or not. You don't know that you can go eat a squirrel. You might try it, but that's something you have to learn. And one of the reasons we talk about learn behaviors uh, a lot as animals in environment with humans is that learned behaviors give animals the ability to adapt to changing situations. One of the good examples to see learned behaviors is when animals are interacting with humans, because that's where you can see animals exposed to a big change in their environment. And learned behaviors are one of the ways animals can conform to what an environment needs. And I'm not using the word adapt here, because the word adapt has a very specific context when I'm talking about evolution. An adaptation is a change you see in the genetics of an animal that it passes on to an offspring. If I'm talking about the case of a seagull who learns to eat french fries as a food source, nothing's changing in his genes as a result of learning about the food source, and it's not going to be passed down to his offspring. So that's one of the drawbacks of learned behaviors. A raccoon can learn to forage in a trash can and knock over my trash can and cover the back steps with trash and leave poop on my doorstep. That jerk. Such a jerk. But that's not something that it can pass down to its offspring without needing to teach its offspring that behavior. And just to throw out some examples of cases where animals learn stuff without humans being around, baby otters need to learn how to swim, which is adorable. And their mommies teach them by holding them in their mouths and dragging them around in the water. That's nicer than many humans are taught to swim. Yeah, my dad just tossed me in. (laughs) (laughs) Wolves have these hierarchical social orders in packs. Hollywood makes it sound, well, there's an alpha wolf and a beta wolf and a gamma wolf. That's that's not true. But there is generally one or two wolves in a wild pack who have more status than the other wolves. So if a new wolf comes along and wants to join that pack, the more dominant wolves in the pre-existing pack will come over. They'll bite him on the neck. They'll wait for him to give certain signals that he understands, and they're communicating. And so after that, the new wolf in the pack will know to let the other wolves, to let the more dominant wolves take the food first. And there's an example of learned behavior. Are you sure it doesn't have a genetic component if it's so stereotyped? The signals are stereotyped, yes, but the knowledge and the memory is not. Like, the wolf has the innate knowledge that if Wolf X bites me on the neck, he's the alpha wolf, but he doesn't know which wolf is the alpha wolf. So he has to recognize an individual as the superior wolf. See, I think this actually segues perfectly into our final segment, in which I have two examples I really want to talk about. (laughs) We better segue into it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have a, a clear example of how it's so hard to dissociate what behaviors are genetic and which ones are learned. 
there often tends to be a dual component to them, where there is some, you know, some innate internal motivation and innate knowledge and a learned component and something derived from the environment that's been adapted and modified. So for instance, the drunk monkeys, the drunk monkeys, drunk monkeys, name of a band from the sixties, I think. Drunk monkeys, drunk monkeys, drunk monkeys. All bands, of course, have one song that's just their name <laughs> sung over and over again. No, I really like this, though. This is good. I like your burgeoning music career. And so my boss actually gave me this video, which is very funny. Um, so there's a, a group of monkeys that were brought over to one of the Virgin Islands, to St. Kitts, uh, about 300 years ago. And uh, these monkeys have learned how to drink. So they first learned um, that by eating fermented fruits... They acquired a taste for alcohol. And now what they will do, they've learned that they can go to these like swanky little resorts and creep up on people on the beaches and steal their cocktails. <laughs> and so these monkeys, which I'm, I'm going to have to post the video for this because, oh God, it's beautiful. But these monkeys will, will sneak up to people and they'll, you know, they'll steal their cocktails. They'll take little sips. And they've learned that this is a viable source of uh, both uh, food and nutrition and just a lot of fun. <laughs> Just so much fun getting getting trashed on the beach. It's really truly beautiful because they will actually get totally toasted and just start you know lolling around and just acting goofy and falling off of tables and just. And what's actually funny is that the monkeys who get the drunkest seem to be beloved by the other monkeys. Like they just think oh, the life of the party. That guy. Well, except for that monkey's wife who is gonna leave him and take the kids. Yes. But what's actually interesting about this behavior, well, in, in addition to the fact that it's drunk monkeys. Drunk monkeys. Drunk monkeys. <laughs> is that the number of drinking and non-drinking monkeys, it seems to be a fairly constant rate. So there are monkeys that will drink a lot and get completely, completely wasted on it. There will be a portion that'll just kind of the equivalent of like a glass of wine a day. They'll only sample it. And then there are some monkeys that don't drink at all. And what's what's interesting is that, that the percentages of those monkeys links pretty closely with the percentages of the human population that drink very little, drink a moderate amount, or drink to excess. And so there seems to be a genetic component to alcohol preference and alcohol consumption. And now you're giving me side eye. <laughs> which one, which drunk monkey are you, Liz? I am the life of the party, drunk monkey. Drunk monkey. Drunk monkey. Oh god, Jesus. <laughs> Go to the serious example. Okay, so that was a wacky example, but there's one example that there's been a huge amount of work done on, and I actually studied under two of the people who were involved in a lot of this very rigorous behavior work. How do you study under the people who went to the Caribbean and they watched monkeys to see how drunk they got? How do you study under them? Because I want to apply for that. I don't know, and if I do find out, I will let you know. <laughs> but, no, I just took two classes with these people, but they're very they're esteemed people. That's not a brag. It's a brag. Anyway, moving along. That example are zebra finch song learning. So zebra finches are uh, birds, not they, fish. Yeah, they're not. They're not fish. Oh, zebra zebra fish are actually another neurobiological <laughs> model organism. Also, zebras are real animals. Yes, and yet we've appropriated their name to use on all these other animals. <laughs> We're so horrible. Um, so uncreative. We could have thought of anything. We could have called them anything, Liz. Anything. And yet we just named them after other existing animals. <laughs> be sick. If we find a horse with feathers, can we call it the zebra finch zebra? That would be really upsetting. <laughs> that would make me extremely angry, and I would fight you. Um, so zebra finches are small birds, and they have a very complex song. 
They use it in their courtship ritual when they are mating. Only the males sing in their species, generally speaking, and the males learn their songs as juveniles. When they sing for females, if the female likes the song, they might choose to mate with the males. But how do they acquire these songs? So zebra finches are very social birds, and so juvenile male zebra finches will be around older males for much of their development, and those older males will have a a working, tried-and-tested, tutored song. However, that's not all there is to it. Male zebra finches raised in isolation, like, if they are raised without any other males around, they will still sing. And there is a whole branch of science about this, that if I take an animal and I lock it in a little box and I let it live in that little box all its life, what will it be left with? Well, it's not necessarily a little box. If it could I be reduce a big it box in to a the different shell, room. I've reduced this animal to the shell of a zebra finch. To be fair, most of the stuff was done in the 60s before ACUCs were a thing. <laughs> before we had ethics of the 60s! Yeah. Uh, fair, actually, though. <laughs> yeah, if, well, it will still sing in isolation. And so they can go their whole lives without hearing another animal's song. And yet they will still sing their own song. So surely the song song singing behavior is purely genetic. Right? Probably not, because you're doing that voice. He got it. Good catch. Yay. Also, I read the notes. Yeah. It's not so simple. They're both learned in genetic components to song singing. So researchers at Cornell University discovered discovered that there is a song syntax or a set of common phrases and sections to a zebra finch song. So there are, you know, certain, I wouldn't exactly compare them to adjectives and adverbs, but, you know, there's certain things that go in certain places in a sentence and that can only go there. It's a lot of repeated variations on the theme. That's a sexy chick. And by chick, I mean literally (laughs) it's a bird. Oh, I was worried we were going to give you, like, really bad puns in, and you did it. Thank God. Sexy chick. (laughs) Really sexy chick. Oh, God, please stop your band. No. (laughs) Your music career is going to take off, um, but people are just going to pay you to stop singing. (laughs) You'll make a lot of money, though, so, like, it's really good. This is an amazing business model. Um, So there's syntax to these songs, but there's also sections where the song gets more variable, where there are little learned trills and embellishments. It's Um, like a jazz improv. Yeah, although I'm actually not clear if it is improvised or if it is just another, like, learned embellishment. So it's like, maybe you learned the basic notes of Chopin, but you forgot about the fancier notes. This is a bad analogy. Moving along. Juvenile males will learn from listening to their male tutors. They'll learn these trills and embellishments, and they'll learn a fancier, more... I'm not going to say a better song, but they will... The syntax will become tighter, it'll become more structured, they'll be less, like, wandering off, it'll be... They'll be become more well-spoken, in, in a sense. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the East, and Juliet is a sexy chick. So males who have been tutored will have songs that are more tightly strung, they'll have embellishments, they'll have trills, they'll be fancier, they'll be more rhetorical, they'll be like William Shakespeare, they'll be like Romeo. And in addition, when they're singing it, when they're practicing the juvenile males, when they're practicing their songs, if there are female chicks, female birds around... Chicks? Sort of. I mean, they'll be like adults or other juveniles. Good point. But they'll, you know, they'll respond to the song, they'll they'll rustle their feathers, they'll be like, oh, I like this song, or they'll be like... You're an amateur. Stop playing Wonderwall. (laughs) (laughs) And so the males learn from this feedback. They'll learn from listening to the other males and comparing it to their own. They'll learn from the feedback of the females and they'll learn from the feedback of their male tutors. Yeah, and so the females will prefer the more tutored songs. They prefer the ones that are, you know, more tightly strung and, and focused. So there's learned and genetic component to the song singing behavior. 
And what's also interesting, though, is that female birds also learn their preferences by listening to male tutors. They don't have, the females don't have innate preferences. They actually learn their preferences from the tutored males who are tutored by other males. So females raise in isolation, because of course researchers tried that as well. Don't prefer tutored to non-tutored songs. They only think the well-sung males are sexy because they've grown up with whatever the zebra finch equivalent is, is uh, of James Bond or some other you know, hyper-masculine movie star. James who- Bond is not a real person. He's a movie person. He's a real. He's a hypermasculine <laughs> movie, movie star. He's a movie figure. Okay, but like, name one, Liz. Who's John Connery? Connery. He he was Bond. He's super old though. Well, currently it's uh, Daniel Craig. He's also super old. Wait, he okay. is super old. They really need to cast ja- a new James Bond. Mm-hmm. See, like I can say James Bond because he's iconic. But if I say Sean Connery, then it means the old guy who's like alive. Is he? Is he alive? He's alive. He just okay. hasn't done any movies since uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's fair. Um, that would make me want to quit movies too. One <laughs> final bit of interesting, which is this is on tangent now, but uh, female zebra finches well can also sing under a select number of circumstances. Okay, if an estradiol is injected into the female zebra finch's brain at a young age, which you might know as a precursor chemical to estrogen, mm-hmm. they will uh, begin to sing like males, and they'll have, uh, exhibit other male-like behaviors as well. So there's a very neurobiological component to it, when one that seems like it has you know a genetic link to uh, various sex genes. But what's actually so what I kind of want to point out about that is that yes, it's estradiol that makes the females more male. Not testosterone. Yeah, you'd think it would be, um, you'd think it'd be a, like an androgen, you'd think it'd be a male androgen. But actually, the popular perception of what exactly sex hormones do is very far removed from all the stuff they do do, um, which is a lot of different, various contradicting things in different realms. So you have estradiol in the female zebra finch brain makes them more male, and there's a whole number of different signaling cascades, and so if you have this certain level of this hormone here, and this certain level of testosterone here, you can get all sorts of different sex effects. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, and it's never really a clear cut, oh, you have more estrogen, you must be more female, or you must have more, more testosterone, you must be more male. And so that's why it's a little bit funny when people are like, oh, there's so much testosterone in the room. And it's like, well, okay. We're all generating testosterone, people. Yeah, it's just a matter of different levels in different areas in all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff. Also, it's pretty reductivist, and I don't like it. <laughs> so I think today we've covered a lot of ground. And we've been able to discuss a lot of interesting things about learned and genetic behavior and how it's really at the intersection of learned and genetic behaviors where we get some of the behaviors that are the most important behaviors in human civilization today. And I'm talking, of course, about cat videos. Hallelujah. If I have my giant fluffy cat and I put a little feather duster before her, and I shake it. She's going to try to paw at it. She doesn't know why she's pawing at it, but she has that little inherited tick in her brain that all cats have that say, well, if you shine a light in front of them, they're going to try to jump on that light, even if they've never hunted for prey in their lives. And typically when cats are kittens, if they're barn cats or if they're wild cats, have their mom around to teach them how to hunt and that that batting and pawing behavior is really all practice for when they're out in the wilds hunting and we humans are free to find it adorable the cat doesn't really need to be pawing at a bird or a squirrel or anything to do that behavior that's just something that's part of them innately and it makes us laugh to see other animals doing futile things 
<laughs> that makes us feel less alone. Well, see, that behavior is only futile because they only have the genetic component and not the learned component. Oh, and also human language is another example. Oh, yeah. So in babies, you know, babies will start forming pseudo sentences, will start making noises. They'll start making sounds that sort of sound like words. They'll be making the baby noises. They'll be cooing and gurgling. Because there are specific areas of the brain that are attuned to help humans develop language. And they just kind of generate noises on their own. But that is refined by human feedback. So they hear mom or dad talking to them. They start uh, imitating those patterns. And when they imitate those patterns real good, a mom and dad smile and like, oh, you're saying a word. Good job. Oh, he said dada. Oh, he's learning to talk. And that's positive feedback. And you learn to say that word. And you learn what that word means with time. And then if you take your baby and you lock your baby in a box, your baby will not learn language. Yeah, and you will be taken away. That's where we go into outro. Okay.